listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit gocentralchurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. Good morning. It is good to see you. Uh, it's good to get to worship together today. Uh, my name's Ethan. I'm the pastor here. If we haven't had a chance to meet, uh, I would love to get to say hello. Uh, and so you can, if you're new with this, you can grab one of these connect cards out of the pew in front of you. Uh, you can fill that out and then you can take that right out uh, to our first time guest tent. We have a gift that we would love to put into your hands. Uh, or you can send a text message to 407 338 4024. We'll have that number on the screen at the end of the service uh, so that you can see it, but we would love to connect with you uh, and just get to say uh, hello. Well, if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to the prophet Joel, uh, or like we said last week, to the table of contents and then to the prophet uh, Joel. So it is uh, right after Hosea uh, there. We are uh, just right at the beginning uh, of a new sermon series uh, we're calling Summer in the Minors. And so we're going to spend this summer walking through each of the minor prophets. Uh, And so we're not going to go verse by verse. We're just going to look each week at a different prophet. Uh, And as we look at that prophet, we're going to see what is the Lord saying to Israel uh, in uh, through that prophet. And then also, what is he saying to us? Uh, And so look with me uh, here at the prophet Joel. Uh, Now, as you turn to the prophet Joel, I want you to think about this. Maybe many of you, hopefully most of you, uh, remember uh, the post 9-11 world, right? The, the, pro, the post uh, September 11th terrorist attacks uh, in 2001. Uh, right after those attacks, uh, church attendance grew uh, by over 25% within just a matter of days. Uh, giving ballooned. Uh, people were saved. Uh, I'm grateful for those who were saved. My, my own wife, she was saved September 12th, uh, 2001. Now, what we also know is that it didn't take long for those numbers to fall back to normal. In fact, by January of 2002, we were starting to see those numbers taper off. And actually, by the summer of 2002, not only had those numbers gone back to normal, but in some cases, they had actually gone even lower. See, the the Lord had had used that tragedy. He had used what man meant for evil, uh, for good, to to save people. And and it looked like we were entering into a time of revival. It it looked like we were entering into a a time where the Spirit was about to move in a great and a mighty way. But then it didn't take long for this to happen. It, It didn't take long for spiritual apathy to gain a foothold. It didn't take long for spiritual apathy to step back in and for people to turn or to return to the apathy, the, the, uh, that indifference to the things of the Lord that had characterized them on September 10th of 2001. And so as we look here at the prophet Joel, we're going to see a very similar situation. We're going to see how the Lord uses uh, catastrophe. We're going to see how the Lord uses tragedy in the life of his people uh, to call them back from apathy. And we're going to see what happens whenever the Lord's people repent, what happens when the, the Lord's people return to him. And then what does the Lord promise for those who don't? And so we're going to see some important truths about apathy uh, in our lives. And the main point, kind of the main point of the book of Joel, the the main point that we're going to look at this morning is this, is that the cause of spiritual apathy is a failure to take God seriously. 
The cause of spiritual apathy is a failure to take God seriously. And now look with me here at the prophet Joel starting in chapter one. Uh, Let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word. We're just going to read the first few verses of uh, Joel here right down to verse four. Uh, The spirit says to us this morning, "The, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me as we continue in worship? Father, thank you for today. Thank you that your word is true. Thank you that you are good. And Father, I pray that as we study your word this morning, Lord, I pray that you would kill spiritual apathy where it is in our hearts today. God, I pray that you would speak in a clear way to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the cause of spiritual apathy is a failure to take God seriously. And as we we move through the book of Joel, uh, we see this first. We see that God warns against our apathy. That God warns against our apathy. Now, Joel, like many of the other minor prophets, is a relatively short book. What makes Joel unique, though, is he doesn't really give us a whole lot of uh, historical markers, historical clues uh, for us to know when this book was written. So if you remember back last week to Hosea, uh, Hosea, right at the beginning, he listed out several kings that were reigning during his ministry. Joel doesn't do that. Instead, Joel jumps right in and and he starts talking about this great calamity that has fallen on Judah, this great calamity that has fallen on God's people, and it has to do with locusts, that there was a, a locust swarm that had come, and this really wasn't all that uncommon. In fact, this was a a kind of a regular occurrence, but this one seems to be a little worse. This one seems to have left a mark. It it seems to have left an impression on the Lord's people. If you look there at verse 4, we get this idea that the locusts have eaten everything and that there's nothing left, that that Israel, that, that they have been left completely desolate, completely cut off. And so through this God, we're going to see how he warns against our apathy. Now, we've got to understand that apathy is dangerous. Right? Apathy isn't good, but before we start talking about apathy, we've got to define apathy. And so we can think of apathy like this, that it's a lack of passion. It's a, a lack of emotion. It's a lack of excitement. We could summarize it with one word, that apathy is really indifference. And so what the prophet is warning us of here is being indifferent to the things of the Lord. He's warning us against being indifferent to the things of God. He's warning us against failing to take God seriously. See, it's not all that uncommon for us to fail to take the Lord seriously, right? Maybe you think about the words of the Bible. We could think about the words of the New Testament. Right? When Jesus says things like, anyone who would follow me must hate his mother or his father, we want to start to explain it away, don't we? We want to start to, to, to talk about why that isn't really what Jesus meant. 
right? Why we, we don't really need to take them serious on that. What, we start to say things like, well, what Jesus was trying to say, uh, and I would submit to you this, uh, that Jesus doesn't try to say anything. Jesus says everything he means to say, right? And, and so we, we start to rationalize things, and we start to try to, to find ways to not take the Lord seriously. And here in Joel, he's warning us against doing that very thing. And so he gives us this clue, right, that he's writing after this plague of locusts have have come upon his people. Look with me at verse 13 of chapter 1. We get this warning against our apathy. And first, he, he calls against the priest, right? Look at verse 13. He says, put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. And so this call to wake up, this call to take God seriously, it begins with the priest. Now these are the ones who, who we would assume that they are the ones who, who should be taking God seriously, right? This would be like you telling me, hey, you need to take the Lord seriously. Well, well hopefully a pastor is taking the Lord seriously, right? Well, that's what's happening here. The the priests have failed to take God seriously. They should have been the ones understanding the dire situation that they were in, but they don't. Now he says, go, go pass in the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. And why should they do that? Look at the last, the last line there. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. And so the Lord tells the priest, he says, you should be concerned You should be mourning, not because there is no food. You should be in mourning because now you can't offer the offerings that are due to me. See, the command to mourn is because they can't offer grain offerings or or drink offerings. These were offerings that were never offered by themselves. They were always offered in addition to, to a burnt offering. And these offerings, they really... The Lord doesn't tell us exactly what the meaning is, but as we look at the Old Testament, as we look at the practice, what we see is that these offerings were typically used as an expression of devotion. Now, if they needed to be reminded uh, to offer these things, then, then something has gone terribly wrong. Or we get this picture here that the priest had, had stopped offering the offerings that were due to the Lord. They had stopped taking seriously his commandment to offer the things that were due him. See, this this grain offering and this drink offering, these offerings were offered from the first fruits of the harvest. And so what has happened here, at least the, uh, the sense that we get from this passage, is that these priests have stopped offering the first fruits of the harvest. Instead, what they've done is they've just started being indifferent to what the Lord has commanded. Right? They started thinking that, oh, well, it's really not that big of a deal. It really doesn't matter if we offer those things because they really don't serve a purpose. They'd failed to take God seriously, but they weren't the only ones. The, the people are also called to return to the Lord. Look at chapter 2. Flip over to verse 12 with me, and we're going to read down to verse 14. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, And rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. 
Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him and a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. He's looking for heart change. He's not looking for just outward, uh, outward examples of repentance. This is why he says there in verse 13, rend your hearts and not your garments. See, this is the danger of spiritual apathy. Spiritually apathetic people can oftentimes appear as spiritually mature. Spiritually apathetic people can oftentimes appear as spiritually mature. Now, now how, how would someone who's spiritually apathetic appear spiritually mature? Because they know what to do, they know where to go, and they know what to say, right? See, it's entirely possible to come and worship every Sunday morning. It's entirely possible to raise your hands in worship. It's entirely possible to listen to God's word, to read God's word, and to walk away apathetic. It's entirely possible to do Christian things and not actually be a Christian. It's entirely possible to go to a small group. It's entirely possible to serve in our, on our First Impressions team or, or in our student ministry or in our kids' ministry and remain spiritually unhealthy, to remain spiritually apathetic. See, what the Lord is looking for here in, in this passage and what he's looking for in us, he's not looking for us to look like Christians. He's looking for us to be Christians, right? He, he's looking for us to be disciples. Here's the thing. I don't think that Satan is bothered by someone who goes to church every week. I don't think Satan is bothered by someone who goes to a small group every week. I don't think Satan is bothered by someone who gives every week. I think Satan is terrified by someone whose heart belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, we, we can do all of those things because that's what Christians are supposed to do. But if we're doing all of those things because that's what Christians are supposed to do, then we've missed it. See, that's why, why the Lord here, he's, he's calling Judah. He's saying, look, don't rend your garments. Rend your heart. And I, I don't want to see outward displays of holiness. I, I want to see the reality of an inward change. I, I want to see the reality of an inward change, of a heart that has been changed by him. Today, he, he would tell us that, that he wants to see the, the outward expression of a heart that has been changed by the gospel. And so, so what does that look like? Well, it looks like coming to church every week. And it looks like worshiping, and it looks like being in a small group and community, and, and reading God's word, and praying, and, and giving to support what's happening. But the difference is, is it's not compulsory, right? It's not because this is what I'm supposed to do, it's because this is what I get to do, right? That, that we go to bed on Saturday night not thinking, oh gosh, I've got to go to church in the morning, right? Ooh, we don't go to bed on Saturday night and I think I've got to go to church. No, we wake up and we go to we go to sleep on Saturday night and we wake up on Sunday morning thinking, I get to go to the house of the Lord today, right? That song that we just sang, there's joy in the house of the Lord. We don't want that to just be a song that we sing, right? We want that to be the reality of this place. And here's what I'm grateful for. I was sitting over there and I was singing and I was thinking, man, I'm so grateful that Central is a joyful church, right? We want to be a church that is known for joy, but what that means is we've got to continually fight to be a church that is joyful, right? We've got to continually fight, continually to seek the joy of the Lord because the joy of the Lord is our strength, right? And so the Lord isn't looking for just outward expressions of 
of people that, that look like they know him. Right? You remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees who looked really holy? He said, you're whitewashed tombs. That you look good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside. You remember what Jesus said to the church of Laodicea about being indifferent, about being lukewarm? He could say, I could wish that you were hot or cold, but you're neither, and so I spit you out of my mouth. See, apathy is terrifying. Israel appeared to be prospering. So what we know from this passage is it looks like, what we know from this book is it looks like Israel appeared to be prospering. It, it, it looked like everything was going well until the locust plague. In fact, if you remember back to Hosea, right? Remember, as we look at these 12 prophets, that, that these aren't really individual books, but this is one book of the 12. And so there are threads that run through them. If you remember back to Hosea, and Hosea, they were thriving, right? They were prospering. It, it appears here in Joel that they were prospering before the locust plague. Here's the thing. Apathy tends to set in when we're comfortable. Apathy tends to hit us when we feel good. I was doing some reading about car accidents this week. I know I'm weird, right? So in 2018 and 2019, 25% of all car accidents happened within the first three minutes of driving. 14% within the first six minutes. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, they estimate that 52% of all accidents occur within a five-mile radius of home, and 69% occur within a 10-mile radius of home. Now, I was reading an article about that this week, and, and they actually they make some comments on why they think this happened, and the number one reason they gave is this, is that uh, familiarity leads to apathy. We could say like this, that comfort leads to apathy. Maybe the most gracious thing that the Lord could do is not make us prosperous, but make us uncomfortable, right? Maybe the most loving thing that the Lord could do would be to stretch us, to, to make us feel the reality of our sojourning a little bit more to keep us uncomfortable because when we're uncomfortable, it's really hard to be apathetic, right? But when we're uncomfortable, it's really hard to just sit back and act like everything is good. As they used to say when I was in high school, it's really hard to sit back and just act like everything's gravy, right? It's really hard to just sit back and be okay when you're uncomfortable, but when you're comfortable, it's really easy to set things on cruise control, and no one sets it on cruise control thinking, I'm going to be apathetic. No one wakes up on Monday morning and says, you know what, this week, I'm going to be apathetic. I'm going to be indifferent to the things of the Lord. What happens is our comfort lulls us into a false sense of security. Right? Our, our, our comfort lulls us into this false idea that, hey, yeah, things, things are okay, so I must be good with the Lord. And we've got to continually fight against that, and that's why the Lord is so clear in this book that we must put apathy to death. An apathetic heart is an anemic heart. Right? A, a, a heart that is indifferent to the things of the Lord is really a, a weak heart. And so he's calling us to, to fight against that apathy. And then what we see in the rest of this book is we've got two options for how we deal with apathy. The first is this. See that God promises his mercy for our repentance. He promises his mercy for our repentance. See, the point of Joel is the danger of not taking God seriously. And so first, we, we see what happens when we take God seriously. Look at chapter 2, 
verses 18 and 19. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. This is a picture of God's mercy. The people repent, and God satisfies them. Now, is, if you were to go back and, and read the rest of this book, which I would encourage you to do, right, to, to take some time this week and, and read the book of Joel, I, I was encouraged to, to hear from people. Uh, I got messages and things this week saying, hey, I just read Hosea. I just finished Hosea. It was encouraging. I hope you'll do that with Joel. If you were to go and you were to read this book, you wouldn't find where we get an exact picture or a, an exact kind of explanation for how Israel repented. But what we see here is that they did repent. And so the, the Lord makes this promise. He has pity on his people. I'm, I'm saying to you grain and wine and oil, you'll be satisfied. Now, no more make your reproach among the nations. If you look over at verse 25 of chapter 2, he makes this promise to restore what was lost. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. Now, we've got a couple of things happening here, right? Look at the end of verse 25. My great army, which I sent among you. So God sent this locust plague. Now, if you remember back to Hosea last week, you remember Hosea saying that he, he has torn us so that he could heal us, right? And so here, the Lord sends this locust plague. He, he's, he's bringing them low so that he can raise them up. Right? He, he's leading them to repentance. Because if you remember, if you, you were to fast forward to Romans, we would read right, that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And, and so here, he, we have this promise that, that he's going to restore what was lost. That, that he's not just going to suddenly make the locusts go away. He, he's not just going to make them go away and their crops are going to come back. No, he's going to make them go away. Their crops are going to come back. But it's not just that their crops are going to come back, but that he's going to restore all that they had lost. That, that all that they had lost, that it's going to come back twofold. This is mercy in action. This is God giving his mercy to the people who didn't deserve it. See, the people had earned nothing from God, yet he gives mercy. That's how God always acts. God never gives mercy to the people who think they deserve it because in reality, none of us deserve his mercy. God never gives his mercy. He never gives his grace to the people who say, I've done enough to get it. I've, not, I've done enough to earn it because none of us have done it, right? None of us have done enough to earn it. None of us have done enough to get it, but he gives it Liberally, he gives it anyway. He gives it whenever we realize. He, he gives us his mercy when we recognize that there's really nothing we can do to earn it. That there's really nothing we can do to get it. Now he goes a step further than just promising restoration. He makes another promise. This is pro probably the most well-known promise, the well most well-known verse, passage from the book of Joel. Look at verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your, your old men shall dream dreams and your, your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and the female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So he makes this promise to pour out his spirit. He says, no longer need prophets because God's going to speak directly to his people. And he's going to speak directly to all of his people, right? Right? He says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
your sons and your daughters, your old men and your young men, your male servants and your female servants, I will pour out my spirit. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, if we were to flip over to Acts chapter 2, we would see where Peter tells us exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is the the passage that Peter preaches at Pentecost. This is the passage that that Peter preaches whenever the, the tongues from heaven fall on the people and people start getting saved. Peter says, look, what you have just seen is the fulfillment of what Joel said in Joel chapter 2. What you have just seen is what Joel promised, and so you should be grateful for it. See, Peter's explanation is this, is that God's ultimate act of mercy isn't making crops grow, but sending his spirit. And that only happens through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. See, what Joel's doing here is he's pointing us forward to that day. He's pointing us forward to the day that the Spirit will be poured out, but the Spirit is only poured out after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. If you remember what Jesus says in the Gospel of John, he says that he has to go so that the Helper can come, right? And so the only way that this Spirit can come, the only way that the Spirit can be poured out on all of God's people is for Jesus to come, Jesus to die, Jesus to rise again, and Jesus to ascend to heaven. See, Joel is really all about Jesus. This is God's promise reaching its climax in the book of Joel. There's coming a day when it's no longer, our relationship with God is no longer going to be dependent on what the prophet says. There's coming a day when our relationship with God is is no longer dependent on what one man says or doesn't say or what one man does or doesn't do. And that day has come, and that day has come in the person of Jesus Christ because Jesus is the perfect prophet. Jesus is the perfect priest. Jesus is the perfect king, and Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. And because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, now that day has come where the Spirit has been poured out on all flesh, and now he is speaking to us. See, Hosea and Joel, as they were prophesying, the the people were flourishing. But this wasn't a sign of God's blessing. God's blessing was found when his people took him seriously. And when his people repented and when they they took him seriously, then then what's the promise? The promise is that that when the people repent and the people take me seriously, then I'm going to show you my mercy. I'm going to show you my grace. And I'm going to do this by pouring out my spirit on you. Now, if we were to keep reading this in context, we, we would see where Joel is actually using rain imagery all through this passage. And he's talking about how the Lord's going to restore the land. And then he keeps using that rain imagery. And he says, just like the rain falls on the ground, the spirit will fall on my people. Just like the rain falls, the spirit will come. And so we see what happens whenever we take God seriously, that he promises his mercy for our repentance. But what happens when we don't take God seriously? What happens when we fail to take God seriously? It's not just that apathy sets in. When we fail to take God seriously, God promises his judgment for our pride. God promises his judgment for our pride. And so what happens when we fail to take God seriously? Catastrophe. Look at chapter 2, flip over to the beginning, verse 1 of chapter 2. We're going to read the, the first two verses. Blow a trumpet in Zion, 
Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there's spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. So here we have what happens if, if Judah fails to repent. And so Joel comes back to this event that he had actually introduced in, in chapter 1. If you, you were to look at chapter 1 and verse 15, you would see, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And so he talks about this day of the Lord, and here in chapter 2, he, he's going to make it a little more clear. In fact, in the rest of the book, he's going to, to bring up this day of the Lord. And this idea of the day of the Lord is actually going to keep coming back all through these minor prophets. This is one of those threads that's going to run through the minor prophets. So what is the day of the Lord? Well, it's used in a couple of different ways. First, there's the day of the Lord that is the imminent soon coming day when the Lord will judge his people. And so that's, that's why Israel, as you read through the book of Joel, you can tell that, that there's this this gloom and this darkness, this hesitation as they talk about the day of the Lord. Because when they've thought about the day of the Lord, they've thought about the day of the Lord falling on their enemies. But here in chapter 2, God is saying that the day of the Lord is going to fall on his people, that he's going to judge his people if they don't repent. But he uses the day of the Lord in another way as well here in Joel and through the rest of the prophets. That second way that he uses the day of the Lord is a day that's further away when God's saving power is demonstrated on behalf of his people. And so when we think about the day of the Lord, it always has to do with judgment. It it always has to do with God judging sin. Sometimes when he's speaking about it, he's promising that he's going to judge the sins of his people if they fail to repent. And other times when he's talking about the day of the Lord, he's saying that there is coming a day when he is going to judge the sins of the world. There is coming a day when he is going to judge the enemies of his people. And so here in chapter 2, this is the the judgment promised to Judah if they fail to repent. Now look over at chapter 3. We're going to look at the the first three verses here in chapter 3. The Lord says this. He says, for behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. See, in the Old Testament, whenever the Lord is talking about nations, the nations always represent what has rebelled against the Lord. And so oftentimes we read uh, about the Lord judging the nations, but here's one of the things to just kind of keep in the back of your mind whenever you, you read about the nations and the Lord judging the nations. See, it wasn't in the New Testament that God suddenly decided that he was going to save the Gentiles, that he was going to to save the other nations. If you were to go back into the Psalms, we would read things like, let the nations be glad. See, it had always been God's intention to save the nations. It had always been God's intention to save the Gentiles because we've got to understand this about God. Our God is a missionary God. 
Okay, so, so as we read the judge, we read this promise of judgment, we read this promise of judgment through the lens that our God is a missionary God who is coming to save the lost. And so we have this picture of judgment because the nations, they've, they've taken the land from Judah, they've sold their people into slavery, they've, they've traded their children to indulge in sin. And then look at verse 19 of chapter 3. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. And so you have this great and this terrible promise of judgment. And so why would Judah fail to repent? Why would the nations fail to repent? Well, the reason they would fail to repent is because their pride is causing them to not take God seriously. See, our world struggles to take seriously a God who is judge. We might think of it like this, that that our world, our culture, is much more interested in a cupcake God. They want to lump all of the pleasant things we think about And then they want to sprinkle it with their imagination. The problem is, is that the Bible gives us a better picture of God. You might say, Ethan, well, how is judgment a better picture of God? Because God is judge means that evil doesn't win. See, God is judge means that there is coming a day when every evil thing, every evil act, every evil everything will be judged and it will be judged righteously. And it will be judged accordingly. See, our God is a saving God. He's a missionary God. But we cannot understand that. We cannot understand that our God is a saving God unless we understand what is he saving us from. And what God is saving us from in a very real way is this. God is saving us from God. God is saving us from the judgment that he has promised on our sin. Now, our pride keeps us from taking this seriously, and it, and it lulls us into this apathy. It lulls us into this apathy that said, God doesn't really care about my sin. God doesn't really care if I do this or if I do that. But here's the thing. God cares about your sin far more than you care about your sin. He cares about your sin, and here he's warning us of what happens if we just continue to give ourselves to sin, right? If we just continue to give ourselves to our sin, then it ultimately doesn't just lead to death. It leads to judgment. And and apart from Christ, that judgment is not temporary. That judgment is eternal because our God is an eternally holy God. And so any sin against him, which is what all sin is, is a sin against an eternally holy God, which means that its consequences are eternal. See, Joel is a serious book that calls us to take God seriously. And it's our spiritual apathy that's caused by this failure on our part to take God seriously. Now, as we look at the book of Joel, we see that we see this picture of God's judgment, but we also have a picture of God's grace. Look at verse 23. 
of chapter 2. Sorry, verse 32 of chapter 2. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right there, in the middle of a promise of judgment, what does God say? It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Maybe today you would say, Ethan, I have grown apathetic. Maybe, maybe you'd say, Ethan, I have failed to take God seriously. I have failed to understand just how holy God is. I have failed to understand just how righteous and just how good he is. And, and here's the thing. There is no one in this room who is innocent from apathy. There is no one in this room who is innocent from being apathetic towards the things of the Lord. I would love to tell you that I am always red hot on fire for Jesus, but I'd be lying. I would love to tell you that that I always take seriously what God has said, but here's the thing. If I always took seriously what God has said, then I would be much more serious about living on the mission that he has called me to because I would understand in a much more real way that hell is hot and hell is forever. I would understand in a much more real way, if if I really took God seriously all the time, then I would understand that God is worthy of my worship. I would come before him not thinking, well, I guess I should pray because it's the end of the day, but I would come before him thinking I get to pray to a holy and a righteous and a good God. And so maybe, maybe this morning you would say, Ethan, I have been apathetic. And really, I'm hoping that all of us would say that, right? That all of us would say that we know where that apathy lives in our heart. And the reason I hope we would all say that is because of that verse that we just read. That anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We think like this, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be forgiven. And so maybe it's not that, maybe you've trusted Jesus, maybe you've been saved, but, but maybe you just need to repent, right? Because our God is faithful and just to forgive those who confess their sins to him. Now, maybe your, your problem isn't that you've grown apathetic. Maybe your problem is that you've failed to take God seriously. And so maybe even up to right now, maybe you have failed to take God seriously. And so, so whenever you, you've heard us talk or you've heard others talk over the years uh, uh, about this holy God who, who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live and to die, to take his wrath for sin and he was buried and he rose again three days later. Maybe you've thought that's nice and that's pleasant, but it's not for me. But here's what you need to know. You need to take God seriously because those who reject Jesus, they don't get a little bit of heaven. They get a whole lot of hell. And so you need to turn from your sin and you need to trust Christ. You might say, Ethan, are you just trying to scare me? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Because, because this is terrifying. Right? This is dangerous. Or maybe, maybe you're like so many and you think, you know what, I'll do that one day, but today's not the day. Well, who promised you tomorrow? 
who promised you this afternoon? I would encourage you, based on what God has said in his word, not based on what I have said, that you, that we should start taking God seriously and that you should give your life to Jesus even now because Jesus is worth it. Because Jesus offers you something so much greater and so much better than what you think you're going to get by delaying coming to him or by resisting the call to come to him. And so we would love to pray with you. We'd love to to talk with you. We'd love to walk with you. What does it look like to, to take God seriously? What does it look like to follow God? What does it look like to kill the apathy that's in your heart? Well, you can send a text. That number's on the screen, 407 338 4024. There's people ready. They want to talk with you. You're not a burden. You're a blessing. They want to talk with you. They want to pray with you. They, They want to celebrate and rejoice about what the Lord is doing in your life. You can, at the end of this service, or even right now, you can walk out these doors. You can go to the next steps room. There's people in there ready to talk with you ready to pray with you, ready to see how we can come alongside you. Because here's the thing, apathy doesn't sound that bad, but apathy will kill you. And the good news is, is that our God offers us something so much better than an apathetic relationship with him. Because here's here's the mind-blowing thing too, right? Our God isn't apathetic towards you. He loves you. See, John tells us that really the only reason we can love him is because he first loved us. See, our God is not apathetic towards us. And so what that means is that we can run to him. And so maybe this morning you need to run to Jesus. Really, all of us need to run to Jesus, but maybe you need to run to Jesus for the first time. I'm gonna pray and and we're gonna sing. And as we sing, we are going to celebrate this good news that our God is righteous and he's holy and he's made a way for us to be saved. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Father, I pray that we would take you seriously today. Father, I pray that we would be people who take you seriously. God, I pray that we would be a church who takes you seriously. And God, I pray that you would kill the apathy that's in our hearts. God, I pray that you would remove our pride that keeps us from seeing you and trusting you and knowing you the way that we should. God, I I pray that you would overcome us, that you would get in the way of us so that we can see you clearly and so that we can take you seriously. And Father, I pray that that our lives would, would declare, our lives would reveal that we take you seriously. And Father, I pray for those in here this morning who maybe they need to take you seriously for the first time. God, I, I pray for that one who maybe right now, they are feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They're wrestling with what to do and they're not really sure what's happening. Father, I, I pray that that you would reveal yourself to them clearly. Father, I I pray that that they would give us the opportunity to come alongside them and and walk with them and encourage them and and pray with them and celebrate the fact that God has pursued them. Because what we know is that our pursuing God is greater than our rebellion. And so, Father, I pray that you would pursue, that you would find, and you would save. 
And Father, I pray that now as we sing, that now as we worship, that we would worship as a people who take you seriously. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you again for listening to Central Church Podcast. For more information on how you can take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.